HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good afternoon. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about the Economic Research Services, a division of the United States Department of Agriculture. And to that end, my guest today is Carrie Litkowski. She is a senior economist and the farm income team leader at the Economic Research Services Service. Uh, as team leader, she is responsible for developing sector-wide measures of farm income, value-added, and the aggregate farm sector balance sheet. Prior to joining ERS in July of 2017, Carrie worked at the Bureau of Economic Analysis, where she was responsible for the production of farm income and employment statistics for the nation, states, and counties as a component of the Bureau's national income and product accounts and regional personal income accounts. So you you write in there in everybody's bank account, basically. Is that, what, is that right, Carrie? <laughs> well, at least I'm keeping track of the farmers and their income. Yeah, such as it is. I mean, this is the, (laughs) I, you know, I was, I was just perusing the ERS um, website as I am wont to do uh, in general. I found it, I wrote a book about the meat industry a few years ago. Of course, I could never resist a plug for my book, but I, um, I really relied on the ERS uh, research uh, enormously for writing that book. Um, So I, I thank the whole agency for all of the good stuff that it does. So, 
Carrie, uh, what interested me in uh, contacting you was a new report on farm income and sort of family farm well-being, I think was maybe even the title of the report, but you correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, before we start talking about that, why don't we start by telling people exactly what the ERS does and then what you do within the agency, because I'll just take a quick parenthesis here. Uh, People have probably been seeing a lot in the news about the ERS recently uh, because it has been moved uh, willy-nilly by the USDA to a new location in Kansas City. And in doing that move, the agency has shed an enormous number of employees who chose not to move. Um, I won't get into the politics of this, but it's obviously going to have a big impact going forward. So let me uh, let me rephrase and say, um, you know, tell us again. Let me let's tell people what exactly you guys do because I don't think people really understand the significance of this agency uh, to farmers. Oh, certainly. Oh, thank you, uh, thank you again, Katie, for having me on the show today. Sure. So I can give you and your listeners the opportunity. Um, to learn more about ERS and the economic conditions that are facing farm households. You know, our mission is to anticipate trends and emerging issues in agriculture, food, the environment, and rural America. And to that effect, we do a lot of high-quality, objective economic research that we hope is used to inform and enhance public and private dis- uh, decision-making. You know, ERS right. is also a federal statistical agency, and where more of my role is. You know, I lead the production of the farm income and wealth statistics, which are the USDA official measures of farm income, and they're used Uh to measure, forecast, and explain the economic performance of the farm sector, as well as the financial well-being of farm households. Right. Which, let's face it, isn't that great unless you're a certain type of farmer. So let me ask you this. What does the agency, how does the agency acquire their information? Do you poll farmers or what, what are you looking at when you aggregate this data? Well, we have a number of data sources. Like for farm income, we're pulling statistics from other USDA agencies like the National Agricultural Statistics Survey, NAS. But we also rely heavily on a survey that we do jointly with NAS called the Agricultural Resource Management Survey, or ARMS. This is a nationally representative survey that is our primary source of information on the financial condition, production practices, and resource use of American farm businesses, and on the economic well-being of our nation's uh, farm households. Mm-hmm. Is there a cutoff point? Like how how small a farm, or how, is, is there a size um you know, it's not, is it a one size fit all kind of questionnaire or is it a size specific? Do you not go below a certain threshold? Well, we do use the USDA definition of a farm, which is pretty low. It means just having uh-huh. the ability to produce $1,000 uh, of agricultural okay. production in a given year. Yep. The survey, though, because we want to be nationally representative and even we even have some of our data can even represent uh, in certain states, especially the farm-heavy states, uh-huh. we do tend to um, some of some of our survey draws from the, some of the larger farms, so that we can fully capture all of the agriculture that's happening in the U.S. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. So now, once you have all this data aggregated and analyzed, what happens to it next? Well, three times a year, typically in February, August, and November. 
we release our data, our estimates and forecasts on income and wealth and household well-being. The data is posted on our website in tables and charts and graphs. And I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, these reports are often covered by local and national media. Mm-hmm. You know, the information is also used to produce research reports that are authored by U.S. economists and researchers who often collaborate with faculty and graduate students from across the country. Mm-hmm. And do farmers use this information for any reason, or this is just really more for the, uh, for the USDA to understand what's happening within the farming sector? Well, I think farmers can use it. Um, For instance, they can use our research and data to benchmark or compare their own financial performance Mm -hmm. to that of the finances for the average or median farm household that is most like their own. You know, for example, we have data over time on the Atlantic region dairy farms. That data can answer such questions as, you know, how much are these farms spending on energy, fertilizer, or machinery and how much uh-huh. debt do they carry? You know, and this may inform farmers' decisions about, you know, future investments in equipment or crop management or what type of crop is most likely to give them the best returns. You know, often this information we don't deliver ourselves to the farmers, but through university extension services. Right. You know, and additionally, the sense. agribusinesses like equipment companies and farm lenders rely on our data in planning, you know, demand for their services or products. Uh-huh. Very interesting. And what about Congress uh, and or the USDA? How, how, does, it, how does your data inform uh, decision-making, um, say, vis-a-vis uh, the farm bill or, um, or new, new rules or regulations around farming? Yes, yes. We, um, the data and research that we come up with is intended to provide kind of the context for, you know, setting up the farm bill and other relevant legislation. You know, we regularly provide oral briefings, custom reports, and congressionally mandated studies, which we deliver directly to Uh executive and legislative branch policymakers and administrators. And, you know, like I said, in our mission, we want to inform decision-making, you know. For example, in the past, we have done work evaluating the impact of eligibility restrictions for farm programs that are based on household income thresholds. And we've Uh also done research on the impact of various tax reforms and how they would affect farm households. Right. Uh, That sounds kind of major. (laughs) If I were a farmer, that would be a major piece of information I would want to have passed along to the to the uh, local legislation, absolutely. Um, some of the more surprising statistics that I saw uh, on the the page, um, you know, on the on the report that you uh, uh, supervised, um, were, was the chart on median farm income and median total income for farm households by commodity, you know, separated out by commodity specialization. And and what really shocked me about this was not only were dairy farms at the top of the chart uh, as far as high income goes, but for poultry, the income from farm activity was evidently zero. 
and beef and general livestock ran in the negative. And given, I have a couple questions around this, but given that the dairy industry has been collapsing for the last decade and smaller farmers are, you know, going belly up left and right, where, where, where did that information come from or what does it actually reflect? What kind of dairies were surveyed for this? Are they only the larger commercial enterprises? I mean, I, I found that very perplexing. Yeah, uh, we include all dairy farms or we, you know, we make our, you know, we have our our large sample and we make the data, you know, rep- nationally representative of all dairy farms. I think an important concept to get across is the idea of what we're talking about with, when we mean median income, meaning that we uh-huh. take all of the farm population, let's say we rank them from low income to high income, and when we pick out the median, we're just picking out the farmer in the middle. Okay. So that means 50% have income lower than them, and 50% have income that's higher than that median. Right. So keeping that in mind, when we look at dairy farms, um, it's important to keep in mind that the majority of dairy farms, like almost 70%, are what we call large-scale family farms, meaning that they generate a gross income of a million dollars or more. And this is not too surprising, given that the lar- there are large capital and time requirements for operating a dairy farm. It tends not to be part-time or seasonal work, and a lot of the right. income for the household has to come from the farm. Yes. And, yeah, we, so they're huge farms to begin with, because that's what they need to be to be profitable. And I we see. have seen a decline in the number of farms as smaller farms are struggling to compete. And kind of the interesting effect of that is that once a farm goes out of business, it's no longer in our data, which ah, can right. sometimes result in an increase in the average or median income for dairy farms if it's the smaller, less profitable farms that are leaving the industry. Uh-huh. So th- that actually makes so much sense now. Now I completely understand because those are falling off the radar, so they're not being counted. So therefore, obviously, the, the rest of the numbers would rise commensurately, right? Because you're not being dragged down by that lower half uh, quite as much. Yeah, I think that can partially of... explain. But we are seeing a move towards larger and larger farms in general, too. Yes. Yeah. I think that's true in, throughout uh, the farming uh, sector altogether. I mean, it's, it's, you know, as Earl Butts famously said, get big or get out, right? <laughs> So yeah. the small farm is not is not really thriving for lots of reasons, which we obviously don't need to go into right now. Um, help me understand another piece of data I saw about livestock farming. Why why are those um, figures either really low or in the negative, like vis-a-vis poultry, where there was absolutely no uh, no indication of income derived from being a poultry producer, and in the case of uh, general livestock and beef cattle, it actually went below into the negative. So what, what does that say about that sector? Yeah, it's easier to talk about probably the farm and um, the cattle sector, uh, okay. it's a little more well-defined. So most beef cattle farms are small cow-calf operations, although there are yeah. the, the, the larger feedlots that we do survey, but they're quite different in terms of their scale and technology. Yes. You know, the, but the majority of family cattle farms are primarily are smaller mid-sized, and many of them are operated by people who are retired or for whom farming is not their primary occupation. And there right. are a lot of cattle farms. There are approximately 775,000 
cattle farms, I mean, that's 20 times more than the number of dairy farms in the U.S. So what yeah. we have is a, yeah, a large number of small cattle farms, which results in a low, medium, or median farm income. So, you know, the average is low because there are so many small cattle farms. But there are larger farms with feedlots that have substantially greater income levels. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think just the way the cattle industry is segregated into essentially three, you know, there's the cow-calf, there's the feeder-stalker, and then there's the guy who finishes them at the feedlot, right? So there's the three sectors of the industry. And I can see how the cow-calf would be the least profitable for sure, because they're not the ones who are ending up selling into the feedlot or selling into the, you know, the, the processing chain um, quite right, so but they're also uh, the, handily. Yeah, but they're also the most numerous. So that's mm, kind of that's why true. the median ends up being negative and, and really low. Right, right. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I, I really did not. It was absolutely, as I said in my email to you, I was like, you know, my eyes were like sort of goggling at this information. Let's let's talk for a second about um, the difference between on-farm and off-farm income, because you make, you know, those statistics also made uh, quite a big point of that. So, and it was obvious that few farms are able to survive simply on-farming income. Can you just discuss what that means? And, and is it substantially different from, say, a few decades ago, did people not have to have so many jobs off farm back in the day, say in the 1950s, 60s, as opposed to today? Yeah, well, you know, we have data back as far as 1960s. And mm-hmm. even back then, it was the case that on average, most of the income was earned off the farm. So this wow. isn't new. It isn't, it isn't new that, you know, and our data shows, like you said, at the median, a typical farm does not make money from farming. Um, so they have to go to off-farm, like off-farm jobs, to cover household living expenses. Now, kind of the implication I see for this is it suggests to me that at the median, a farmer may be operating a farm for reasons other than making money. You yeah. know, I would refer you and your listeners to a recent ERS report on farm households that looked at the returns to farming operation and looked beyond an annual net income as a measure or indicator of well-being, but it also looked at uh, the increase in land asset values, which we don't uh-huh. count in income, as well as the tax loss benefits from a farming loss. You know how farmers can write that off in some cases. Mm-hmm. And that study showed that the share of farm households with positive returns from their farm operations increased to more like 70% when you, when you considered these factors. You know, and also ah. important to some people is, you know, just the lifestyle afforded by having a farm. Right. God, it's a lifestyle that would make most of us just absolutely break down and weep. It's so hard. <laughs> I know I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. and going to, you know what I mean? It's just, it's an incredibly difficult lifestyle, much as you might love it. Um, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Carrie Likowski from the Economic Research Service uh, Division of the USDA. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to talk some more about uh, the impact of the trade wars on American farmers and crops. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Nourish and Flourish showcases thought-provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography. 
Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. Volume 1 of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and Ancient Hawaiian Aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish, connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with uh, an economist from the Economic Research Service, otherwise known as the ERS. Her name is Carrie Lukowski. Um, Carrie, we were talking a little bit about um, sort of farmer income and uh, working on farm versus off farm and what's more profitable, what isn't. What, what are what are some of the impacts that you have seen in the last, say, year and a half of the trade wars on American crops and livestock? Because the first few rounds, yeah. just to remind listeners, started in 2018, and the, and the first products that were impacted by these um, trade wars were soy, pork, dairy, apples, potatoes, uh, primarily. So did you see a substantial change in farming household income or well-being, or are they being protected by the direct payments from the government that we taxpayers are, are funding? Right. I probably you're referring to specifically those like market facilitation program payments that went out uh, to yes, farmers to, that's, pro- yeah, to protect you. them from uh, these losses due to trade disputes. Yes. And we did see uh, direct government payments to farmers from farm programs increase in 2018, but they weren't really enough in 2018 to protect farm households from losses. You know, our preliminary estimates showed that farm household income from the farm dropped in 2018, as well as uh, a drop in off-farm income at the median for these farm households. And wow. overall, farm household income declined about 4% in 2018, or almost $3,000 for the typical or median farm. Uh-huh. And this would put it at its lowest level since 2012. Wow. That's shocking. Although not surprising, obviously. Um, And as the person who puts together these reports uh, from all this data that's accumulated by your staff, what what strikes you the most about the information that you gather in terms of uh, how, you know, the well-being of of family farms and farming? Is it, is it, do you feel like farming is something that's going to be able to sort of thrive and continue? Or do you see a change in farming practices, especially since, um, you know, people, more and more people, not many more, but some more people are getting into farming, young people, and there's kind of some newer models emerging. Do you see any big differences in uh, agriculture in general, or is it too early to tell? You know, what I see more is that farm protection has continued to shift to larger farms, and we, we hit on that a little bit earlier in this conversation yeah. as well. Um, and I don't see any reason to believe that shift is going to stop anytime soon. Right. You know, one, of, one of my favorite statistics in you know, over 20 years of 
well, favorite's probably not quite the right word, but one of the most startling statistics that I that I I've come across uh, comes from the Census of Agriculture, particularly the 2017 Census of Agriculture, showed that the 77 largest farms accounted for two thirds of all agricultural production in the U.S. Wow! There are wow. two million farms. Yeah, but 77 account for two thirds. Because there's, I mean, I think the census is about, there are about 2 million farms left in the United States overall, or things that are classified as farms. Is that right? So out of 2 million, 77 of them are producing two thirds of the food. Yeah, well, in terms of measuring the value of sales. Yeah, the values of agricultural sales. Wow. So I guess my question about who's going to survive and who is pardon the pun, withering on the vine, um, (laughs) has been answered by that because I don't see uh, that, I don't know. That's that's just a very, that's something I'm going to have to think about, Carrie. Like that is really kind of scary and crazy. And it's not new. It's not like we had this dramatic increase in 17. Um, It is, you know, the, the numbers from 2012 and I think 2007 were pretty similar. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that it means that you have to be large to survive. Again, we yeah. have some research that we've done here at ERS that shows the adoption of new technology, like preci- you know, precision agriculture, such as GPS, yep. mapping systems, auto steer systems, input application, you know, tend to improve farm profitability. And we also have research that has shown that local food marketing can be another way that many farms can strategize to remain viable especially during yeah. you know, times of commodity price downturns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what I see from this conversation is kind of we're talking, we do tend to be talking right now about the largest commodities as opposed to the sort of smaller um, mixed-use farms that um, you know many people in the sort of so-called progressive food movement would like to see a shift back to that agriculture and there is a lot of research that shows that having a mixed use farm is more environmentally friendly and so i guess i can't ask you this but i'm going to anyway do you see, is there anywhere in your research that you see a sort of resurgence of those smaller farms um granted not part of the research we're talking about here but but do you see um, a large, any kind of increase in those kinds of farms, or is that just too granular for, for your agency to really be paying attention to? I think there are people in our agency paying attention to them, but I mm-hmm. am more focused on the sector as a whole. So, you know, right. when we produce these, these farms, you know, indicators, they're for the sector as a whole. And as you mentioned, that tends to get focused on corn and soybeans and the large sure. commodities. Yeah, the things that we trade internationally as opposed to locally. So the sort of farms that I'm talking about are really farms that would be, you know, sort of part of a re-regionalization of a food hub um, because they're growing multiple different types of crops. They're not, you know, it's not Iowa or Kansas where you're all pork or you're all soy or you're all corn. It's those are not the farms I'm talking about. And that those are the farms that you do most of your research with. I understand that. Um, I was just curious if there was some, you know, little benchmark that you were able to see um, as somebody who works in this uh, in this um, in this category. Um, but another really surprising data point in your report, which was, as I said at the beginning, is all about sort of farm welfare, farm, you know, well-being and welfare. Um, hardly any farming families seem to have health insurance. What is that about? 
I mean, it's a dangerous well, job. No, Why don't people have health insurance? Well, probably for the similar reasons that there's a chunk of the U.S. population as a whole that doesn't have it. Um, in 2015, we asked on our arms survey about their health insurance coverage. We asked farmers. Uh-huh. And we found that about 11% of farm households lacked any health insurance. And that wow. compares to about 9% for the U.S. population as a whole. Mm-hmm. So this does put farm households at a slightly higher risk of financial yeah. losses due to health issues in the general population. And, you know, we've long believed that one of the big reasons a farm household takes on an off-farm job is to get health insurance coverage. And in uh, 2018, on the ARMS survey, we did ask directly about the reasons the principal operator and the spouse worked off the farm, with one of the possible reasons being to get health insurance benefits. And we're going to issue a report in December that is going to summarize this information about health insurance by type of farm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I can't wait to see that. Um, and I guess my last question for you, Carrie, because I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but most farmers, uh, certainly that I've met and read about, uh, are politically conservative and tend to vote for Republican politicians. But as somebody who has been looking at these numbers over the course of multiple presidencies and uh, congressional majorities, can you assess which party has served the farming community better historically in terms of you know, voting for better programs for farming communities? Who do you think pays more attention, if anyone? <laughs> yeah, I, I have not done any such analysis. You know, the farm economy is very dynamic, and I would warn against assigning blame or credit for changes in the farm economy to any particular policy action. And, you know, one thing comes to mind is that there's one thing that politics can't control, and that's the weather. You know, farm right. income tends to be highly cyclical, often around weather events. Yeah. For example, farm income peaked in 2013, and that was following the drought of 2012, which mm-hmm. led to higher commodity prices and overall you know, record-level farm income in 2013. Interesting. Right. And of course, those cyclical, those uh, weather events are only becoming more and more extreme, as we've seen in the last couple of years, for sure, with all the wildfires and the floods and the droughts and the floods. And the <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's you know nobody can control that. That's for sure. Although it seems like farms are getting farmers are getting more and more interested in working to try to mitigate some of the impacts of climate change. Um, they don't all seem to be completely on the same page, though, as I, I must say. Um, so, Carrie, overall, what did you what what would you what would you have listeners take away from this conversation about uh, the the well being of the agricultural sector in general in this country? Is it something that we need to be looking at more closely to try to lobby for or encourage? legislation that will be uh, somehow different from what we're already doing? Or is the status quo kind of as good as it's going to get? Well, um, you know, I can't advocate for any particular policy position. Um, I know that, yeah. Yeah, when we look at farm households, I just think the important thing to take away is that, you know, household well-being is a combination of on-farm and off-farm activities. And when we look at the farm sector as a whole, 
you know, it also, you know, we've seen it peak in 2013, like I talked about, and then drop. And then now in 2018 and 19, we're, you know, we're getting back up to average. Um, but evaluating the health of the farm economy is something that we we should continue doing and doing regularly. And it's something that ERS, you know, we are committed to doing like three times a year, like I talked about, you know, yeah. so we're going to Come November 27th, we're going to update all of our data again, uh, including our forecast for 2019. And at that point, we can put in the latest available data. We'll have more complete data on these market facilitation program payments, which will give us a better idea of, you know, we'll also have more complete data on, you know, commodity sales and the effects of the trade disputes. And, yeah, it's something we need to continue to follow and we need to continue putting resources towards so that, when we make decisions, that they can be informed. Yes, right, absolutely. Well, um, now is the moment to promote yourself shamelessly. Um, where can people find more information about this topic and others? Uh, what other kinds of information can they find on the ERS website? Yeah, you can go to our website at ers.usda.gov. There is a ton of information there from data tables, graphs and charts to... Um, to research reports, you know, one of our favorite products is we do something called charts of note that anybody can subscribe to and you can have delivered to your inbox once a day on business days, a chart just highlighting some of our research findings, a key research finding. And they range the whole spectrum from what I do, farm economy, to local foods, to rural economies, to the environment. So they kind of really give you a nice taste of what kind of information ERS produces. Right. Well, it's it's absolutely vital information. And uh, I, I did you have to move to Kansas City or did you get to stay in D.C.? I'm staying in D.C. Uh-huh. OK, well, we'll just <laughs> we'll leave it right there. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And I appreciate what the ERS gives to, you know, anyone who is interested in you know, who's growing their food and how it's being done. So um, this is all vital information that, you know, I, I would love it if people paid more attention to it so that we could uh, be more unified in our approach towards um, growing and disseminating food. But anyway, that's for another conversation. Thanks so much for um, joining me today. And thanks for to my engineer, Matt, and to my sponsor. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. So long for now. <laughs>